everyone, welcome to this episode of Prosper Podcast, where we are talking everything from memes running the stock market to metaverse investing. Today's guest is Kyla Scanlon, who is a rising star in finance TikTok. Kyla also happens to be one of the youngest traders I know, having started trading when she was only 17, and she's now only 23. Her career in the finance space has been nothing short of impressive, having been a contributing author on Seeking Alpha, an associate at Capital Group, and now an investment partner at OnDeck. Kyla had a lot to share today about why financial literacy is so low, the six parts to the memification of the stock market, the future of metaverse investing, and much more. So without delaying any further, let's get into it. Here's my discussion with Kyla Scanlon. Thank you so much for coming on Prosper Podcast. Um, I know that we were introduced a while back and I thought that your story was really interesting being such a young investor. And I really wanted to invite you on here to talk more about that. Um, can you go a little bit more into your background before becoming you know, a TikTok influencer in the financial space? I see that you're laughing at that, but you can tell me why later. So if you could go back into um, your history before kind of you started this new part of your career um, and we can go from there. Sure. Yeah. So uh, I am Kyla um, and I started trading options when I was 17. Uh, so spent a lot of time just like figuring out markets and had a lot of space to figure out markets um, and just was really interested in like the concept of money and like why did money exist and what drove people to to do it um, and to like try and make it. So spent a lot of time studying the markets and then in college majored in finance and economics and data analytics and was lucky enough to land a job on the buy side at Capital Group, a big uh, asset management firm, went through one of their rotational programs and ended up leaving two months ago uh, to sort of explore other options in the tech space. And I met with OnDeck now uh, just because I wanted a little bit of creative freedom. And the capital was a great place, but for me, it was really important to have creative freedom. And, and especially right now, I think in the financial space, like there's just not a lot of um, people who are, who, like there's a lot of noise out there, I think. Uh, and so like, I thought it would be cool to try and build something where it's not noisy, it's more, you know, common sense investing, more rational. Uh, so that's been my my main goal. And I've been, creating content. So like when I started options trading, when I was younger, I created a blog called Skinlet on Stocks, <laughs> where I would uh, chronicle my options trading. And like looking back on some of those posts, I'm like, I can't believe, I can't believe I released this to the world. Um, but yeah, I just would, like, I wrote for Seeking Alpha, was just like really into just like talking about finance and, and, and really fascinated by it. And so now it's kind of cool to be on TikTok and, and talking about it and have a YouTube channel too and a Substack. Um, and just spending a lot of time like thinking about how to talk about it and relay it in a comprehensive manner. That's pretty amazing. Like, I think that you're 23 now and you've kind of been through a lot of different parts in finance from the investing side, the trading side, and kind of like the content and knowledge sharing side. Why do you think that you're so attracted to explaining concepts that are quite difficult for the normal person like is that something that you've always liked doing or are you kind of learning as you go as well what's what's driving that yeah so when I 
I guess like I've always been a writer like I would write books when I was little like little kids books and stuff and so it's always been important for me to like have some form of communication with outside world and I would normally do that through writing uh and then when I was in college like I was just really I don't know I just really was fascinated by it and I just wanted to talk to other people about it and like in like in my college town, like, it, you know, really small, 70,000 people, there was nobody who was options trading. So I was like, I have to write about this online so I can like find other people who are doing the same thing. Uh, so that was like the main thing, I guess, at the beginning was sort of like, how do I, like, I have to create a, you know, stance for myself and then other people will come and I can talk to them. Um, but now it's just like, I really love creating community and I feel like it, it helps people. Uh, and so like, that's the main driver now is like, how many people can I help and how many people can learn um, alongside me because I'm definitely still learning. Like I got one comment on my TikTok the other day where it's like, I, you know, when I first started watching your videos, I had no idea what you're talking about. But like now I kind of, I get it. I get it like with each video, like I understand more and more. And that's just like such a fulfilling feeling to me. Uh, I think I have like more of the educator side of me than I, I don't know. Like, I guess I don't know if the other side would be, but yeah, definitely really love the education part of it. Yeah, I think you're one of the very few creators out there that has somehow been able to take very dry concepts and been able to make them fun and interesting. And I think that's why it is very exciting to kind of see this new age of um, learning about finance and the economy. And how are you gauging? Well, maybe I should phrase it this way. Do you think that this trend of learning about finance through communities and social media will change how financial literacy is taught in the future? I think so, yeah. I think that people are able to learn from other people in the community now, and they're able to learn from people that they trust. And I feel like that's like a really thing, big thing that's missing in, in the financial space is like lack of trust. Like, you know, people, individuals don't trust institutions. Institutions don't really maybe care as much as they could about individuals sometimes. And so I think like we're starting to close that gap through communities and like really optimizing how other people learn and like who knows what and connecting them, right? So like one person would know one thing and another person would know another thing and together like they're that much stronger. So I think community-based learning is huge. Do you think that community-based learning is attractive to more retail investors or those who are entering the retail investment space because they're able to see somebody that's like themselves? I think so. Yeah. I think, I think it, it sort of bridges the gap of like what people like think finance looks like, and then they'll go to their community and see people who like don't fit that, you know, quote unquote, traditional profile, like talking about finance and talking about it in a tangible way. And I think like when you have people who've had, you know, a different background than just pure finance, they're going to explain things in a different way. And so I think that's like super, super valuable is when you can get a bunch of people with like unique backgrounds and diverse perspectives to talk about the same concepts because people learn so differently. Um, and so hearing it from like hearing it a couple different ways it, from like the same thing, a couple different ways is super valuable. So I think that's a, another thing that communities provide. That's cool. Um, so like usually what happens is that there's like a new trend now with the democratization of financial services. And we also have the trend of people who are learning complex financial concepts, you know, through communities like TikTok and Instagram and YouTube. Do you think that these two trends are complementing one another and that 
Like, how do you see the future of investing for retail investors with those two trends? So the democratization of finance and community-based investing, like those two things? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think like one thing I've been really interested in is like community funds. So like people pulling their money together and like investing in a fund together. Like, I think that's going to be really interesting moving forward um, because that way it's not like, oh, like I have to decide on the stock. It's like, oh, like my whole family's invested in this. Like it makes sense. Uh, and so I think that's going to be interesting. And then I think like, it's just access too. So like, if you have a friend who's in a community and they're sort of using one of the social investing apps, like it's more likely that you're going to use that app too. So I think with the social investing apps and like um, creating more democracy around finance, what that's doing is it's enabling these communities to form. So I think it just, that creates like that flywheel that just keeps on spinning. So yeah. that's cool. Um, so we know that financial literacy is at an all time low. And even though we do have these like incredible moments in investing history where retail, retail investors are kind of like, you know, we have situations like GameStop and all this type of stuff. Um, why do you think that retail, no, sorry. Why do you think that financial literacy is still so low for, you know, the average person? Yeah, I mean, I think there's a couple of things. Like it gets down to accessibility and then also risk. Like I think we, so it's not really taught in schools if, unless you major in finance. Um, and then it's not, if it is taught in schools, I don't think it's taught in a very like sustainable way. Like, okay, I know how to balance a checkbook, but like, what does that actually mean? So I think there's like that lack of application that happens. Um, and so then when you get into the real world, it's like, what does, like, I literally don't know what's happening. Um, and even if you like major in finance, like the way that academic finance is taught versus like how finance is actually, you know, goes is, is totally different. So I think it's like that. So just that uh, disconnect between education and application. And then I think unequal access. So like, for some people, it's like, okay, my, you know, my dad, my parents invest, so it's easier for them to understand what that means. But other people like, you know, they're like, oh, no, just keep all the money under the mattress, because it, it's never been taught to them or shown to them, like what investing actually looks like, and how you open up of how do you even open up a brokerage account, like that sort of thing. So just like that one little step, I think, keeps a lot of people out of the market. And then I think risk. So a lot of people are like, oh, the market's so risky. And like, when you go on the news, like they're always like, oh, the market's down 2%. Like, go, ah, it's so crazy. It's a lot um, of noise. Yeah, so much noise. And there's not a lot of signal amongst the noise, right? Uh, and so that can scare a lot of people. Like I, I talked to a high schooler the other day um, and he was like, yeah, I'm just a little bit afraid of investing. <laughs> like, I just, I'm afraid. And I thought that was like such an interesting point because it is scary. Like we don't, it is scary. Um, especially when money is like, you know, it's not infinite, it's infinite, so finite. <laughs> so yeah, I think that's a big problem. Yeah, I, I think like something that you said was, that was quite interesting was how, like if you were taught finance in school or university or like higher education, how it's kind of taught in a manner where it's not particularly applicable to someone's everyday life. And I remember kind of realizing this when I saw that like bankers didn't really know how the economy or money worked. And I was getting more feedback online about, you know, the true narrative of what's going on. So, you know, mm -hmm. how would you, when you want to explain the economy to somebody, like, how do you go about doing that? Yeah, it's, it's kind of tough right now. Because <laughs> <laughs> we're in this like very like easy money economy where like maybe things aren't, like, I feel like supply and demand is sort of skewed. Uh, 
and like that's like that's kind of what I would start like supply and demand like so you know when somebody wants a dollar from you and they're going to buy this good um so supply and demand right like that's going to set all the prices in the economy and prices are going to drive how people spend and how people spend determines like what GDP does uh and so like that kind of builds up into this you know what the economy is is like theoretically GDP but now you you have sort of this balance sheet economy where uh, people can borrow or take out debt and that finances their business, that finances their decisions. So it's not really fueled by like supply and demand so much as much as just like access to to money. Uh, so yeah, that was a horrible answer. No. But that's how I would explain it. Yeah. I think that's probably the way to explain it is that it's like a market-based system yeah. where people are buying and selling and they've also added like an element of debt on top of that that allows people to I guess expand further than they would with their own cash capital right so I think that totally makes sense like what what type of financial services apps out there are you personally using or do you personally like yeah, so I keep it pretty simple. Like I know that there's Wealthfront, Betterment. Um, like there's a ton, Prosper. Like there's a ton of them. Um, but I I use TD Ameritrade for my my trading, and then I use Twitter <laughs> for like all my news information. And uh, so I keep it I keep it pretty simple. I need to start exploring like the other apps a little bit more, and I have. Um, but yeah, there's just like a lot of them right now, which is really great. Which is really great. Yeah, I think so too. So like you have a newsletter and I love that newsletter because I don't think I've come across one that is just like so specific yet easy to understand. And one of the newsletters that you had was about the stonk market. Now we know that right now, like the markets are kind of unexplainable and they're irrational. Like there's just a lot of easy money coming, like going around, but it also means high risk at a time like this. Um, but something that's kind of emerged from this for the first time that I've seen at least is the fact that people are kind of dictating their favorite trades through memes. Um, and you kind of went into like, you know, the six parts of the memification of the market. Do you kind of want to ex explain like what that even means to the normal, to an average person? Yeah. Yeah. So I think the markets are more so like with the memification of the markets, it just means that markets are driven more so by narrative versus fundamentals and fundamentals meaning just like okay this is actually a good business that's generating cash flow versus like oh we're gonna go on reddit and and like look at this stock and and, and you see that happening in crypto too is like people are like we're gonna pump this coin and then we're gonna leave i uh, with profit i uh, so i think like that's kind of like what unification means is the ultimately divorcing from fundamentals and, and leaning into narrative um and it, it's driven by six key factors uh one being SPACs, which are uh, special purpose acquisition companies and the SPAC companies are just another way to go public. Um, so a lot of companies that were you know, like pre-revenue, like flying helicopter companies is what I call them, were going public via a SPAC and investors were investing in these companies on the hope that they would like go to these massive lofty valuations. In uh, in SPACs have actually had quite a bit of a pullback since I wrote this article. Um, they're not doing so well anymore, but that was sort of like this meme narrative, right? Like you people were just like, okay, I think this SPAC is going to go well. I don't have any idea if it will, but like just it might. And then you have the, like the SPAC effect goes into like the Tesla effect. So what Elon Musk does in Tesla just reported earnings today. So um, more narrative, but not bad, not bad earnings. But um, with the Tesla effect, 
like a lot of the specs that were going public were EV companies, so electric vehicle companies and Tesla, like the interesting, interesting thing about Tesla is they're not like they have quite a bit of product, but like they've definitely not met some of the goals that I think investors have for them. Uh, and so SPACs that go public that are EV SPACs have a premium attached to them. So they have an, like an additional bit of valuation. So com- or investors are willing to pay a little bit more for EV SPACs. And so that was kind of like this narrative too, is like Elon Musk, who's literally the meme king, like the techno <laughs> king is what he named himself. Um, he's able to add sort of this meme premium onto SPACs and also Tesla uh, as well. And then Tesla kind of ties into ARK, which is a fund that's led by Kathy Wood. Um, and she has a couple of different ETFs that she runs. And uh, like ARK has just gotten really, really big over the past year, lots of investor flows. And that's created sort of a risk cluster because she really likes Tesla. She owns like a lot of Tesla. She owns a lot of Bitcoin um, or Tesla owns a lot of Bitcoin. And so she owns a lot of Bitcoin indirectly. Uh, and then she has exposure to a lot of little biotech companies. So she's a whale in a lot of companies and, and with ARC, it, you know, that's really a lot of narrative. Like their Tesla valuation model was literally just narrative, um, like $3,000 price target on the assumption that like their insurance business was going to be profitable. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, that was the narrative there. Uh, and then NFTs are another frenzy that's also pulled back a little bit, but that was also the meme market um, was, you know, people were just like paying a lot of money for NFTs. It was literally just supply and demand, but it was also like the abstraction of value. Like what is money? Like what is supply and demand? So that was another example of the meme market. And then GameStop and the retail investors were the final like two aspects of, of this memification of the markets because GameStop is a meme. Uh, it's still <laughs> up. <laughs> but yeah, like people were just, it, that just became something that people believed in. Not yeah. because GameStop is like a great company. Like they're, they're fine. Um, <laughs> but people just were like, I think it's going to go up. <laughs> and so it did. Yeah. I guess like the, exactly what you said before, which is like the fundamentals are fundamentally different, like the narrative. And do you think that when you look at the health of the market, whether it be a bull market or a bear market, like does that change how investor money flows from fundamental investing to narrative investing? Or is it that it doesn't really matter what the market is, it's just what investors, investors feel like having a laugh sometimes. I don't know, like, do you think that, it's because of like the health of the market where these narrative investments are taking shape. Mm, uh, yeah, I, I mean, I think that it's just a lot of uh, a lot of money is trying to find a home right now. So like the money supply has expanded by thirty percent, right? Uh, so like a lot of people in like you know with the pandemic, people were at home and they were it's like similar to me when I was like in high school. I was like, "What's money?" And a lot of people are have, asking that same question, like, "What's money? What's trading? What does this mean?" Um, so I think it's just a lot of money uh, trying to find a home and a lot of people, I think the market has gained a reputation recently uh, as a casino almost like kind of a place to get rich quick and then cash out and then you, you know, you don't have to work again. Uh, so I think that's like that narrative is starting to get conflated with investing is gambling. <laughs> so, yeah. So 
what what's your prediction for the market? We know what comes up must go down. <laughs> so um, do you think that this bull run has, you know, still some steam or do you think you'll kind of like go back into bear like very quickly? Is there things that are happening in the economy that you think will affect the stock market? Yeah. So one thing I'm super worried about and keep a really close eye on is inflation. Um, I think that we have muted inflation, especially like when you look at input prices like lumber, corn, uh, soybeans, cotton, that's all shooting through the roof. Um, and so like those input prices are going to put price pressure on companies. And so their profit margins are going to contract and that's going to show up in share prices, right? If they, if they have less profit and they're not able to pass those costs off to consumers. So if they less profit, meaning they have less money, um, and so I think that could be a way that the stock market contracts is like if inflation does get out of control and then you could see the 10 year, which is like sort of a gauge of how investors are feeling the 10 year bond, uh, how investors are feeling about inflation, like you would see that ticking up. And then if that ticks up to like right now, it's about one and a half percent. If that ticks up to 2%, like you could see the federal reserve who, um, sort of manages interest rates step in and say like, oh, we're gonna raise interest rates. And that's going to really create some valuation compression for the way that these companies are trading. Valuation compression, meaning that they're just not going to be trading at these very high multiples that they are right now. Yeah, so, you know, you mentioned a lot about inflation and how like that you think would be a key driver to drive the stock market down. How do you feel about, you know, things like Bitcoin where it kind of is like, I guess people like to phrase it as like the anti-inflation asset. Like, how do you feel about that? Yeah, I mean, I I understand what that means. Like, I I get why people would say that, but I feel like Bitcoin is sort of tied into the stock market um, a little bit. Like, they're a little bit- Hugely. (laughs) Yeah, so I'm just not sure if it would survive. Like, I think, like, the thesis makes sense, but like, people are more and more tying it together. Um, so I don't think it would be the best inflation hedge. Yeah. Yeah. Well, what do you think would be a good inflation hedge? Yeah. I've been like really thinking through that. Like the immediate answer would be like real estate. So like different types of REITs, you can get kind of cool exposure to like, like cold storage, like refrigerator REITs, like things like that. So I think that's like an interesting way. Sorry, say that again. (laughs) Like refrigerator REITs. So like cold, like, so like, you know how like um, companies will have like big freezers? Yeah. Yeah, like freezer rooms, <laughs> like that you can get exposure to those through reads. <laughs> so, like, <laughs> like, like, so like those little things, right? Like that that would be a cool way. Like, cool, like refrigerator reads probably aren't going to hopefully like be that crazy. <laughs> so, um, yeah. That is so funny. So like, I guess like your suggestion is like, go for things that are more stable and they're less affected by inflation. So like things that are infected by, affected, sorry, by inflation would be like, you know, corn and like all those things that you were saying. And like, would you say that the assets that are most affected by inflation are, well, I mean, you tell me, what do you think they are? Yeah, I mean, I think that some of these like high-flying tech companies, like if we do see inflation increase, like they're going to have a hard time. Um, and then I think like consumer goods companies, so like companies that create retail products or, or anything like that, or companies that have like a high worker base, like they're going to be impacted by inflation because like workers are going to be like pay us a higher wage. Um, and then also like retail, like they have to have passed off a higher price. So I think those sorts of companies are going to be impacted. And then companies that are 
reliant on, on inputs um, and are reliant on like supplies. Like that's going to be tough for them too. Good to know. Um, so again, like I, all I did was go into your newsletter, but like, honestly, guys, like if you ever want to know more about investing, please look at Kyla's um, newsletter. It's got so much information on there and like, she's got everything else, but like that, I think just had very condensed information that was explained easily. Um, but I know that you're very bullish about um, metaverse and like everything to do with that. Can you explain exactly what a metaverse is to our viewers? And we'll go from there. Yeah, yeah. So the metaverse is sort of this virtual physical reality. Um, and I'm just, I feel like I like, so for me, it, it's, it's a lot of different things. Like it, it relies on a lot of like, it would rely on an acceleration in virtual reality and um, augmented reality, like people getting that off the ground. Um, but basically it's a place where you can just go, you're online, it's like the next iteration of the internet. You're online, but you're able to like interact with people in a much more um, in-depth way versus like how we interact now. So like, instead of us having a Zoom call, like we'd be able to like be a little bit more face-to-face. -face. It would feel more interactive. Um, it would feel like more, more connected. Um, and so I think that is sort of how I envision the metaverse. Like the reason that I'm really excited about the metaverse uh, is because I think it has really big application in the education realm. So I think like if you can get people in the metaverse, so like, uh, you know, kindergartners, first graders, and they're able to learn the way that they're meant to learn, um, that would be really cool. So like for me, like I envision the metaverse in my mind, which I don't know if it's the best thing to do, but like, like you can sort of build out your own research hub. So like for me, I'd have like an interactive whiteboard where I can like write everything down and it would pull everything that I would need and like all the research that I would need. Um, and with kids and like they could learn if they are more like interested in actually immersing themselves, like they could go to like where the American Revolution happened and you'd be able to like see that. And that would just be like, like I think one thing that the metaverse could do that we don't have right now is it could teach us like lessons, right? So like we, we've, we the American Revolution happened because like politics, right? But like if you're able to actually like process what that meant, meant I think that'd be really cool. Um, so the metaverse is like it's just like a place to meet in a virtual world. Obviously, I'm like conflating big things with it, but I think the potential, right? Like the potential is really big, um, and the applications are really uh, wide ranging. Yeah, for sure. It's like I I think that the way that I've tried to understand what a metaverse is, or at least the potential of it, is that, you know, we've kind of exhausted the physical world in terms of how far it can, you know, serve us as people and like as people that want to do things. So we know that it's not an anti-fragile situation because of like this, what happened with COVID. And I think that we have this like emergence or this crossroads between like all these incredible emerging technologies like virtual reality and all this type of stuff and blockchain and being able to cross that together to create a metaverse that actually works. Do you see, like what metaverses do you think are out there at the moment that are probably a little, that, that are maturing over time that like we'll be seeing what you're talking about where like the potential of it would most likely exist in? Yeah, I mean, I think so to the blockchain point, I think Decentraland and Sandbox are doing a lot of interesting work. Um, I think they're like, that's pretty cool uh, having that exist there. I, the reason like that I got kind of into the metaverse in the first place was I think Roblox is like kind of moving in that direction. I know it's like right now a lot of people are like, oh, it's just a game for kids. But I think that they have a lot of potential to build in that direction because I think the CEO has been thinking about it for a long time and, and what it looks like. Um, so I think that those three companies are probably the most advanced from what I've noticed. But like 
the, the space is changing like every day and changing so quickly. Um, and I know a lot of people are building there and thinking about it, which is really cool. So we just have to get like the, the impact of it, right? So like the VR, AR stuff, um, and then also like think about the implication, implications of it too. Um, so yeah. How would one kind of go and go about investing in the metaverse like right now? Because like, you know, a lot of the times like people, investors make their money when they enter the market early in an industry and like metaverse, I think, or like that industry is still very early in its potential. How would somebody go about investing in an industry like that today? Yeah, there's a lot of small crypto projects that are working on it. So like investing there in the decentralized and sandbox. And then I think like Roblox to me is a call option on the metaverse. I say investing in Roblox. But I think like even getting exposure to companies that are building an AR, VR, because all of that's going to have to combine like economies of scale eventually. Um, so I think like that would be a good idea. But yeah, I, like I think the crypto projects are probably going to move on it the fastest. Um, and that's yeah, probably what I would check out. Why do you think that the crypto projects will move on to it the fastest? Like, I guess the thing is, it's like I, my background is from like the crypto space and like I've not seen any other industry move as quickly as a crypto space. Like the cycles just like live and die so quick that you get kind of like the final contender very easily. But why, why do you think that? Yeah, I mean, so I'm not from the crypto space, but like I've just sat, like I've noticed it, right? And thought about it. I think because it's open source, um, I think that's like a really big driver of it. And I think people are incentivized to like actually work on it because, you know, it's, it's a, I don't think it's like a nine to five where you get paid a salary. It's like, okay, like actually, like I'm invested in this project, literally. Um, so I think like the open source aspect of it and then just like the free will part of it, I think are, are two of the main drivers for me. Yeah. That I've cool. Yeah. It's like, I'm really, really excited about this space. And like, I'm excited because I think that it's a, like, it's forcing this merge of all this technology that's, slowly getting primed to be used on like a huge uh yeah huge way but mm -hmm. um you know okay so i know that people who are probably listening to this podcast or like viewing it they are interested in like what the secret is right or like what the habit or philosophy is of somebody who is you know in investing such as yourself like how do you like how do you go about like building your investing philosophy what are your habits what do you look at what do you use yeah. All right. Um, I, so like, I, this might be a longer answer than anticipated, but like, so I'm, I'm pretty young still. And so I'm still learning a lot. And when, when asked about my investment philosophy, like my main answer is like, I look for companies with pricing. I have a core portfolio and I trade options against it. Like that's always my answer. Um, and I have like companies with pricing power that operate in moat industries um, and then I have like my sort of bullish plays like Roblox would be one of them. I have exposure to crypto too. Um, I just like try to get exposure to things that I think are interesting. Um, and then I trade options against things to like reduce cost basis and, and just like sort of play into different themes that I'm noticing. Um, so I guess I would consider my philosophy like thematic investing. Like, so I invest in the metaverse. So like if a company is talking about the metaverse, I go and check them out. I invest in moat companies like waste management, I think is like kind of cool. Um, so, like, kind of, like, <laughs> I love boring. how you go from like one <laughs> yeah. world to another. And I'm like, excuse me. <laughs> yeah, Makes sense. Yeah. Makes sense. <laughs> yeah. So it's just like things like that, where it's like, okay, like, you know, I have this bullish play, but also like we do need waste removal. So it's kind of like that sort of stuff. Um, so it's like practicality with a mix of uh, dreams 
and then I, you know, I trade options um, and I'm still learning about it like all the dynamics behind options and what it means to like have Delta and Gamma and like all this stuff. Well, um, why don't you go into like what it's like trading options? What is it? Cause I think it's like, would you say that's like the entry point to trading? I think so. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So like for me, <laughs> I had such a backwards, I, I don't know, maybe it's not backwards, but like I had such a weird entry into investing. Cause like how I started investing was like by trading options. Like I hadn't really bought stock before. I was like, let's just go trade options. <laughs> um, right so in I, there. <laughs> yeah. Like to the, you know, to the top. Uh, and so I, I got like certified through TD Ameritrade. And um, this is back in, you know, when I was in high school. I love and, how you say you're like back in and I'm, I'm expecting some like, you know, long number. And you're like, no, in high school. I'm like, okay. <laughs> so, continue. <laughs> um, but yeah, so like that's how, how it started. And then for, for me, like I'm, I'm pretty risk averse actually as, as an investor. So I would trade a lot of like neutral strategies. Like I didn't rent, I didn't really take any like big bullish plays. So I wasn't like selling like naked options, naked options, meaning like you, you're not risk protected. Um, you're just sort of like, ex- like you're, you're very exposed on the downside, um, very exposed to loss. Uh, so I would trade a lot of like neutral strategies, a lot of credit spreads um, and, and just like, try and collect a little bit here and there and then you can sell a covered call again stock that you already own and like just collect a little bit of premium there and that reduces your cost basis of the investment so like if you can collect like six dollars on a covered call like over time on a 66 dollars stock you technically bought that stock for 60 dollars um so that helps to increase your profitability that makes sense. So like if you had to look at your portfolio right now, like what percentage are in what industries, if you want to share and yeah. Yeah. yeah so it's actually kind of funny that you asked that. Um, so I, so I left asset management two months ago and there was a lot of compliance stuff there. So I'm still building out my portfolio. Um, so like right now it's, it's like Roblox and I have exposure to like um, uh, companies that have like government exposure. So like the waste management companies, um like airplane companies i think are kind of interesting uh so i'm still like finalizing everything so it's not where it needs to be um but yeah so it's a little overexposed to the metaverse (laughs) (laughs) at least you're being honest about it like i i have been in the past very overexposed to crypto so i know that's like when something really speaks to you you're like you're like no i'm a bull like i'm an irrational bull and i'm proud of it (laughs) it, like Roblox happened, um, like right, right around the time that I was leaving asset management, like right around the time that I could start trading again. Um, and so I was like, yeah, like metaverse companies, where are you? Uh, so I'm like balancing that out right now. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's cool. Okay. So I think just to round it off, like what advice would you have for first time investors? Yeah. I mean, I think it can be a little overwhelming and like a little scary and you feel like you have to track everything. So I'd say like just find companies or industries that you're really interested in and, and try to find companies that you're passionate about. Like I, like I remember somebody gave me advice once like, oh, if you wear Nikes, you should buy Nike stock because that means like you believe in, in the company. So I think like just little tips like that are helpful. The main thing is just to get started um, and to find other people who are interested in investing and sort of follow the same philosophy that you do. I don't think that like you need to be checking charts every single day. Like I think that's where people can get overwhelmed is like, I need to check my charts every minute of every day. Um, I don't recommend that unless you're day trading. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I think just getting started and, and making that first 
trade or that first investment is the most important part. Amazing. Thank you so much for coming on this podcast. It was a pleasure. Um, how, like, what's the best way for people to get in touch with you? Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm across all dimensions right now. Um, so I'm on TikTok <laughs> and on Twitter at Kyla Scan. Uh, and then I have a Substack. Um, so I say Twitter is probably the best way to, to contact me. Um, yeah, just my DMs are open. Awesome. Okay, thank you. Thanks.